This week's Whiskey Flick podcast is presented by Sawyer Family Barbecue. Since 1974, the Sawyer family has been serving their unique, locally sourced exotic meat deep in the heart of Texas that is always a cut above the competition. Plus, it definitely won't cost you an arm, a leg, or any other limbs. Put on your best face and come down to Sawyer Family Barbecue this weekend. Use promo code HITCHHIKER to get the all-you-can-eat feast on the family for only $69. Sawyer Family Barbecue, we can't wait to meet you. On today's Whiskey Flick, who will survive and what will be left of them? Grab a glass as we hitch a ride to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Welcome back to Whiskey Flick. I am your host, Terrence Dunn, ready to enjoy a few tasty beverage while we revisit some of our favorite movies, music, and more. Back with me once again this week is, of course, my co-host, Matt Graham. Matt, what's new? Not much, man. I missed an episode, so I'm happy to be back on the airwaves and penetrating the ear holes of our faithful fans. So glad to be back. You were missed. The fans did notice your absence. You were phenomenal, and our guest host, Marty Patel, was amazing and like i kind of was like maybe i shouldn't do this anymore because like he's such so much more eloquent well-spoken um and i thought he did an amazing job bringing a more in-depth view to a very deep movie that we did in no country for all men so i want to shout out to marty there for filling in well i've got some big shoes to refill so let's get after Marty did uh, do an awesome job joining us, and we'll have more of those kinds of guests, obviously, as we go on. And I was stoked that he came around to our perspective on the film, which is the coolest part about all of that, was when we uh, asked him to join us for that episode, he hated the movie. And by the time he got to actually talking about it with us, he loved the movie. So that was kind of cool. I like that. Well, Matt, guess who's coming to dinner? It's time to put our best leather faces on as we dive into Toby Hooper's 1974 genre-defining horror classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a film often imitated but never truly duplicated. This, I can't believe it, almost 50-year-old flick forever changed the face of horror and influenced the modern scary movie that we know and love today in ways both big and small, which we'll talk about as we break down the movie. Before we get into this absolutely delightful film, let's talk a little bit about the drinks that are going to help us get through essentially chapter two of our visit to these dark corners of the Lone Star State. So, Matt, what are you enjoying this week? Uh, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I am drinking Jameson, Irish whiskey, two ice cubes, four fingers, ready to ready to rock and roll. For myself, this movie, one of the things that it's probably best known for being is a trashter piece. Like, it's not high art, <laughs> as we saw with No Country for Old Men. And there is a certain uh, revelry in its trash, so I'm kind of reveling in the exploitation and trashiness of it all. So what does that mean? It means that I'm drinking some really good whiskey, Heaven Hill, but I'm drinking it straight and more like a double shot as opposed to an actual sip and drink. And instead, I'm actually going to be drinking a beer that was... Uh, bourbon barrel aged 1314 bourbon barrel aged from black tooth brewing company up in sheridan wyoming so you know kind of a, a trashy take on whiskey this week uh, in honor of this uh one of my favorite questionable films i've got some uh i had some initial takes when i watched it and i've uh, i've got some additional takes that are more pro movie we can get into it i don't like the movie i'm not gonna say <laughs> i like it but i can see some of the some of the things that are done well the film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery 
of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Before we get into the details around this movie, let me contextualize Matt's comment a little bit here. So up until this point, this is movie number four that we've talked about here on Whiskey Flick. Up to this point, uh, we've only seen movies or talked about movies that both of us had previously seen. But there are a few of those movies that we haven't both seen. And this is the first of those movies where uh, Matt went into this week sight unseen uh, and has now since seen the film, which I'm excited about because we haven't really gotten to talk about true first impressions. So far, they've only been uh, historical first impressions, like when we saw it way back when. Let's talk about this movie itself, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The film was released in October of 1974, and even when it was first released, it was released to a mixture of praise and revulsion, both from audiences and critics. There's a story about a sneak preview screening of the film in October in San Francisco that resulted in half of the people walking out of the theater in disgust, people were throwing up, they were demanding refunds, they were getting in fist fights in the lobbies, and a legend of a film was born. The critics were all over the place on this movie. I captured some of the original, uh, the original feedback that I, that I thought really stood out to me. The LA Times at the time called it a despicable film. Uh, they called it ugly and obscene. I think probably the most famous review of the time came from Roger Ebert, and I love this review. As violent and gruesome and blood-soaked as the title promises, this movie is some kind of weird off-the-wall achievement. I can't imagine why anyone would want to make a movie like this, and yet it's well-made, well-acted, and all too effective. It belongs in a select company with Night of the Living Dead and Last House on the left of films that are really a lot better than the genre requires. <laughs> Matt, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the criticism of the film, the initial criticism of the film. I mean, I had a lot of the same thoughts when I was watching the movie. So, yeah, that, <laughs> those sound about right. I think Roger Ebert was fairly kind to the movie, um, kinder than I might be, but we'll see. Well, I can't wait to get to your first sight. Uh, the movie was made for less than $140,000, uh, which is still less than a million dollars, even after adjusted for inflation. It was filmed uh, on location in and around the Austin, Texas area with a local crew and local cast. When it was released in theaters, it was a massive hit. The number one movie of the weekend, the number one movie of that month. By the end of its run, it had sold nearly 17 million tickets, grossing uh, adjusted to today's dollars over $150 million at the box office. And until Halloween in 1978, it was one of the highest grossing independent films Ever. Now, the film, of course, uh, as we get into the plot details in a little bit, is based very loosely on the story of Ed Gain. If you want to get into, you know, some real creepy late night YouTube and or Wikipedia holes, feel free to go down that path. His story was the inspiration for not only the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but films like Psycho, Silence of the Lambs, uh, the film Maniac. Now, as we mentioned, the movie was made by a local cast and crew. This included Toby Hooper, who was the director, producer, and the co-writer. He actually got the idea for the film when Christmas shopping at Montgomery Ward in 1972. He mentioned in an interview that he spied a rack of chainsaws and thought this would be a great idea for a way to get through Christmas crowds. And an idea for a movie was born. And then the cinematographer, Daniel Pearl, who has done a ton of stuff, was also responsible for lensing the 2003 remake. I think the coolest thing that I found was the dude has been the cinematographer or director of photography for hundreds of music videos. This includes the Every Breath You Take music video by The Police, the Notorious B.I.G.'s Mo Money, More Problems, and of course, NSYNC's Bye Bye Bye. And then of course, we've got the cast. Marilyn Burns as Sally Hardesty, one of the first final girls. Gunnar Hansen as Leatherface. Edwin Neal as the hitchhiker that, oh my God, why did they ever pick that dude up? Jim Steidow, the cook, who was the only one that actually came back for the sequel. And then of course, the infamous narration from the opening of the film, which was done by a very young John Larroquette, who went on to considerable television fame on Night Court, as well as his own eponymous show, The John Larroquette Show. Matt, before we get into the legacy of the film, any kind of thoughts in general on the cast and the crew? Visually, it is a good job from a, you know, from a cinematography point of view, portraying this very, very rural, hot Texas, creepy kind of area. The locations from the gas station to the abandoned house to the actual house that's used. It's all very, all very effective in what the movie is trying to accomplish. So that's good. The cast, not great acting. That being said, I think that that works. 
specifically with like the, the Sawyer family, because they're not good at reading their lines, it almost like gives into the creepiness of what they're saying even more, if that makes sense. Like I found myself like watching them argue with each other over who's better at, you know what I mean? Who's better at killing somebody. And you're like, they're not doing a good job, but like also that's fucking terrifying conversation to have. Maybe it's good that it's awkward. That they're so I think some of those things actually work out to the movie's favor. One of my favorite horror films, and I'm not a big horror film guy. I think we can, we'll, we'll establish that from my thoughts on this as much as some other movies we may watch. I do like The Descent, and like The Descent has like at the end of it, the main character running through the woods to the road, completely covered, her face completely covered in blood. Direct ripoff from a scene in this movie. I'm sure a lot, and a lot of horror movies do it. So there's definitely some iconic scenes in this movie. See, and you're like, oh, I've seen that a million other places, especially because I've seen other things before I've seen this. So it's kind of nice to see where some of that, that stuff came from. But yeah, overall, I mean, it definitely seemed like a movie that would have cost $140,000 to make. So good for them. <laughs> the Descent, I think, is one of a few examples we'll end up talking about on this episode. This movie was so iconic and defining, and it did create and establish a lot of the horror tropes that we know today. There's an argument to be made that they were done more effectively by others. I mean, we may as well just get it out of the way right off the top here. While this film is compelling and it's actually, I would say one of, if not my absolute most favorite horror film, the rest of the franchise is pretty bad. The other films that were inspired by it did a better job of executing those ideas that originated here. And then I, I, I love that you brought up the scene where the family's arguing, right? Right? They're like arguing about who could do a better job. That's one of a few examples in this film of something that the director was pissed off about. One of the things that he always talked about in interviews that he hated, that Toby Hooper constantly mentioned, was that he was always bothered that no one picked up on the humorous elements of the film. And it's one of the reasons why the sequel is a fucking riot. If you ever get the chance to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, it is hilarious. So, so I, I just thought it was funny that you pointed out that scene because that dinner scene is one of a few examples of... I think some of the funnier scenes in the film. I just can't take no pleasure in killing. There's just some things you gotta do. Don't mean you have to like it. I could tell there was humor there for sure. It's there's a it's, lot, a lot. Maybe I would chuckle harder if an old man wearing someone else's face wasn't sucking on some girl's fingers like five seconds before. You didn't like Grandpa Dracula? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> we'll get into that for sure when we talk about the dinner scene. If the point of that scene is to is to make you feel uncomfortable and gross, well done. Well done, but not for me. All right, so let's talk about the legacy. 50 years later, what exactly did this film do? Uh, it spawned a franchise that included nine films. That's a remake, two prequels, and five sequels. There are books about it. There are comic books made about it. There were video games made about it. There have been rights and ownership issues pretty much ever since the inception. Uh, and that has a lot to do with the fact that there were all of these different owners and the rights were subdivided. There were rights to the film that were granted to the cast in exchange for actual paychecks. The production company was a mob front and they ran off with a bunch of money. So like the rights and ownership is a mess, very similar to the Halloween franchise. And that's part of the reason why it was 12 years between the original and the sequel and why there are now three different continuities that exist within the franchise. That includes the Michael Bay slash Platinum Dunes remake series, and then the later Millennium Films versions, which are the most recent ones, excluding the new Netflix film, which is in the original continuity. Again, a mess. It's all over the map. Uh, it was one of the first films to feature uh, what later became called a final girl, the final female character who confronts, escapes the killer, someone who's morally virtuous, usually somebody who has not drank or done drugs or had premarital sex during the course of the movie, like all the scream rules, basically. That phrase obviously came from a later book, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Great book. It was one of the first horror films to have the killer utilize a tool as a weapon, in this case, like sledgehammers and chainsaws. This was obviously repeated uh, throughout the 80s, including the machete of Friday the 13th, the knived glove of Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and the drill that's used in the Slumber Party Massacre series. It also kind of gave birth to the found footage slash fake documentary kind of era. So movies like The Blair Witch Project, Cannibal Holocaust, which is an awful film that no one should watch. It also kind of delved into 
the horrors of country America or like Americana. So uh, a theme that was repeated in The Hills Have Eyes. And of course, it influenced a wide range of filmmakers. Wes Craven has credited it as a, an inspiration of The Hills Have Eyes. Hideo Nakata was a big fan of it. That's the director of the Ring series. Rob Zombie, who did almost direct ripoff in House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, and Ridley Scott cited it as an inspiration for Alien, which is wild to me. Stephen King called it one of the scariest movies that he had ever seen. And of course, it actually did, as we mentioned, receive a number of accolades, both at the time of release and after the fact. It was admitted to the London Film Festival. It was simultaneously banned in over a dozen countries. It stayed banned until most recently. Uh, Singapore released it in 2004. It is now universally recognized as an important film in you know the horror lineage. Total Film has regularly had it featured in its polls of directors across Hollywood as the greatest horror film ever made. It's been called the scariest movie of all time by Esquire, Thrillist, Complex, and Consequence of Sound. It was inducted into the Horror Hall of Fame in 1990. It is a part of the New York uh, Museum of Modern Art's permanent collection. They submitted it to MoMA and it was accepted. And the original film element, so the actual 16 millimeter film on which it was shot, is actually housed in the Academy, their film archive. All that being said, there was a whole lot of background on this movie because I feel like it's one that has a lot of historical weight and consequence to it as a movie that kind of birthed the modern scary movie. Let's get into it. And Matt, I gotta start with you because you mentioned some of your commentary as you were watching it the first time, but we didn't really talk about it in any kind of depth. I wanted to save that conversation for this podcast. So first sight, Matt, what were your first impressions? So the movie starts and the tone that is set from the onset of the movie is just like, it's this story about grave robbers digging up corpses in Texas. They're listening to radio news while they're driving in a van. And so the story of this grave robbers that have unburied all these bodies and took in the corpses, two corpses were displayed very grotesquely outside the uh, cemetery. And obviously the characters are going to see if their grandfather was unearthed and taken. They weren't sure. But like the radio keeps playing. It's like earthquake strikes, E. coli strikes, mass murderer kills. And it's like bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news story. Just back to back. Just laying this tone of like evil, I guess would be one way of saying it. Or just dark. Like just this theme of just darkness. All of the bad news that you can possibly imagine being spouted off in like a 10 minute uh, radio read. And then I'm like, all right, this is kind of whatever the dialogue back and forth between the characters is I'm also coming around the fact that so the cast isn't very experienced but I think that also plays into what the movie's trying to achieve like it definitely has that documentary found footage like these aren't actors type of feel they pick up a hitchhiker so that scene when the hitchhiker like cuts himself you're like all right this dude's crazy and then he cuts the dude in the wheelchair and you're like fuck like that's that was like the first like I was like oh this is okay this is where we're going and then the deaths inside of the house hot take the first three people that are murdered in the house so the couple and then the boyfriend, they were trespassing. And the dude that killed him has obviously got a very severe mental disability. I, I'm not okay with the torturing, but I'm okay with the killing. Like, this is Texas. <laughs> I'm sure the rules are very lenient. And he like, this dude just is walking through his house. He's like, fuck it. Hit him with a sledgehammer. Boom. Done. Knocked him out. This girl, I wouldn't put the girl on a meat hook. That was kind of rough. But like, he killed her. She was trespassing. And then the third guy, obviously also trespassing. Boom. Sledgehammer. Those kills aren't as egregious as like sticking a chainsaw through a guy's stomach while he's sitting on a wheelchair. I told you I wasn't a huge fan of the mental disability attack on a dude with physical disabilities. That was a that was a rough that was a rough kill. And that's a tough one in general too because we could obviously talk more about like the characters later on. But Franklin is a hard character to love. He's so whiny and annoying and. He's just constantly badgering people. If I have any more fun today, I don't think I'm going to be able to take it. I also think they were kind of rude. To, like, I think they were awful to each other, to be honest with you. I think he was not great. And in response, they were all pretty shitty to him. Yeah, they're like, go, go. Like, you can't come with us. Go find somewhere to go. We're going to leave you alone. There's no ramp to this house that we're taking you to. But you'll figure it out. You'll get in there. I'm not pushing you down that hill. <laughs> I was like. Jeez. And then the use of chainsaws. is So to be fair, I'm not 100% sure that a chainsaw would not cut someone's head off, but I've worked with a lot of chainsaws in my day to give the viewers some background if you don't already know me. I spent 14 years with the Home Depot, two years of which I was in charge of tool rental, and a big part of that was renting chainsaws. So starting them up, fixing them, repairing them, replacing, doing all the things you can imagine on a chainsaw, uh, minus wi wiring the motor, I had experience with. People would have problems trying to cut a tree and getting too close 
close to the ground and it would hit dirt and it would clog up and jam up and stop cutting. So like anything soft, any clothes, shirt would have stopped it right away. Skin might have, bone for sure. I'm not 100% sure because I haven't done the research like firsthand. I've never tried to cut someone's head off with a chainsaw. But I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't be as effective as they, you're led to believe. And then also like people running through glass windows is pretty, I think that happens twice in this movie. People just explode out glass windows. Yes, yeah, Sally jumps through a couple of windows, uh, including one where she jumps out from the second floor. <laughs> Correct. And that's like, yeah. And you're like, holy shit. And then you can see the glass just kind of falls apart on the ground in like sections of four. So there's some kind of quirky, funny things like that that grounded the movie a little bit, which kind of helped it not be as overly disgusting, terrifying as it's, you know, trying to be. And then my last thing was like, I don't know that, that they needed to have the whole like barbecued human meats. That's what they were eating was barbecued human earlier. Just like a view of like this smoker's pit with a torso hanging in it. You're like, ah, fuck, I get it. Yeah, it's a movie that revels in discomfort and not just the discomfort of the characters. It's a movie that's built to make you uncomfortable as a viewer, like intentionally so. And I have a few thoughts. Mission I'll accomplished. Yeah, <laughs> I'll share a few thoughts on that one here in a second as I talk about my own experience watching it. Yeah, some of the some of the cannibalism stuff is a little hard to stomach. And it does just kind of look gross in a lot of ways. Like I know you talked about like the smoker and all that kind of stuff, but also like throughout the film, you can feel the like, I don't know, just like heat and like stickiness and it just it, it's a it's a movie that like makes you feel like skeezy as you watch it the stories behind the actual making of, of a lot of this stuff are like legendary like i know there's quite a few people who have attested to the fact that conditions on set like it was 100 degrees outside it was like 115 inside the actual house itself because there was no ventilation and one of the things that the art director like prided themselves on was how much like real stuff they use so there was like real animal carcasses there were like two real human skeletons were they real this human skeletons seem so fake to me i was like that looks like something you would go buy at home depot and put on your front yard on halloween like they look so fake to me they claim that there were two that were real, but we'll, we'll we'll talk a little bit about the what's fake and what's real here in a second. Uh, it just kind of adds to that legend and that like, the things that you're feeling and perceiving that the movie is trying to do, they did. And they really did kind of put the cast and even the crew through like a gauntlet as they made this movie. <laughs> I, I felt the need to shower as soon as the movie was over. I was like, I need a shower <laughs> and to watch Disney Junior with my daughter when she gets home from school so that I can put this out of my mind. I like it. Uh, well, it's not, and it's definitely not one that's like an everyday watch for me either. So I guess I'll just kind of share my first sight and then we can continue our dive into the film itself. I'll keep mine short and sweet. I've easily seen this movie over a dozen times. I remember this when I was growing up. I, uh, this again is an example of a movie that I probably saw when I was too young to watch it. I, I remember watching it for the first time, I want to say probably in junior high, um, which I still think is young for, <laughs> for a movie like this, mainly because of just kind of like the fucked up psychological shit that's in this movie. Because it's not especially gory as we'll talk about here in a second I, I do remember watching it when i was too young and i remember being enthralled i remember this and the exorcist ironically two movies that came out about a year apart from each other as completely scaring the shit out of me when i was a kid i remember being absolutely abjectly terrified by what was being presented in those two films and even to this day there are parts about it that still freak me out i gotta talk about the opening you talked a little bit about the opening matt and it's crazy to me with how many times I've seen it, but I haven't seen it in a few years until I did the rewatch for, for this. And that opening was so impactful for me, right? So you have just kind of, you know, to, to, to fan it all out for everybody, you have the opening screen crawl, which has that awesome narration from John Larroquette that basically positions it as a true story. All of the kind of initial footage has this very kind of like authoritative news style voice, and it's very like cinema verite documentary style. And that leads directly into these really, really jarring shots it's these like quick appearances it's almost like a strobe like flash of a, of a camera bulb and you hear it's almost like they turned up the volume on it this loud pop of those old school camera flash bulb and the the flashes reveal these like super gross they're like decomposing bodies that are all like gnarly and really gross and it's just like flashing as it goes in between that and there's these strange sounds on the soundtrack and when i did my first rewatch of this 
Uh, I watched it for the first time because I'm a glutton for punishment at like 11, 11.30 at night. Like I love, I, I love to watch scary movies in the middle of the night because I want to, I want to get scared. Like that's the whole point of it, right? And so I watched it really late at night and I remember that just like totally unnerving me. I was unsettled for a solid 10 minutes after that opening. Like, oh shit, like I forgot this is how this movie starts. You're immediately not okay. Like you immediately don't feel comfortable because keep in mind, after you get those sudden flashes, the very first actual shot we get is a shot of the bodies that are posed in the graveyard, like on top of a gravestone in broad daylight. Horror movies before this didn't do much in the way of broad daylight, right? Scary stuff happens at night. In this movie, you have scary shit that happens in full public view in broad daylight. So everything about that opening five minutes is like unnerving on a, on a level that I don't think you'll see elsewhere. You're completely on edge right from the jump. Did you have a similar experience kind of going through the opening? Like how did that, how did that opening sequence go for you? Uh, at least the sounds of it kind of reminded me of Back to the Future, like it had a similar like tone setting effects. The clock's obviously Back to the Future, but like that camera bulb flashing, very uh, like sound that just like hurts your ears to a certain standpoint and just like uncomfortable. I just felt uncomfortable the entire time that I watched this movie. And I know that that is the desired effect. It's not something I like to do when I watch a movie, but it, it definitely was the desired effect and it worked. Well, first of all, for a film called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a it's a shockingly bloodless movie, right? I mean, yes, of course, there's blood, right? I mean, literally, Sally's covered in blood by the end of the movie, like her face is covered in blood. But when it comes to the actual killings, they're mostly bloodless. Like the the first sledgehammer killing is kind of gnarly because um, there's some blood on the floor. Uh, I also think that that is an incredibly realistic killing for a horror movie, right? Like it's a head injury and he starts like twitching on the floor. It's super gnarly. Yeah, that was rough. I was like, oh, this is where we're starting this. My God, this movie instead is all about psychological violence as opposed to actual violence. And part of that was by design. Like I know the, the filmmakers originally uh, somehow thought that this movie would get a PG rating. It was originally rated X. Um, and then after edits, it was rated R, but they, that's why there's not a lot of blood is because like they, they were trying to get a lower rating to open it up to a wider audience. And I think that that had a really interesting unintended effect where it focuses much more on psychological violence. And I mean, let's be candid about it psychological torture in a lot of ways right because on the one hand you have these kind of like quick dispatches of the first boyfriend with the sledgehammer actually second boyfriend i think is also a sledgehammer you get franklin who gets the chainsaw to to his torso but we don't even see it the camera's like behind him we're looking at leatherface as it's happening but then you think about the other kills right because there's obviously a total of five people and you think about not even the kills but what the ladies in the film experience and we'll talk about how that's totally problematic the ladies in the film experience uh, like absurd levels of psychological torture. Pam, the first girl who's impaled on a on a meat hook and then is watching as Leatherface is taking a chainsaw to her boyfriend. And then you get everything that happens to Sally Hardesty in the final 30 minutes of the film. I mean, that girl is guttural screaming throughout the, the entire third act of the film. Like she's just like fully off the deep end at the end of that movie as, as they're doing all these awful things to her between grandpa sucking the blood and being chased through the woods and, you know, all the things that they're subjected to at the dinner table and a lot of very awful psychologically damaging things that are done to the characters. And I think a lot of that same psychological torture is being inflicted on us as an audience. We're being forced to watch these gruesome images and unsettling and uncomfortable scenarios as we hear sounds and see sights on the screen that are completely unpleasant to us. These sudden flashes and quick cuts and disturbing images as we're listening to a soundtrack that's nothing but radio broadcasts of gruesome crimes and strange sounds of camera flash bulbs and like pans being slammed together without any kind of rhythm to it. The whole thing is like very, very disconcerting as a viewer and it's designed to torture the viewer as much as it's designed to torture the character. That's my take on it. That was my experience with the movie. Were there any sequences that stood out to you either that were, were memorable or that maybe you did like within the context of it or like anything else that, that you found impactful? I think the whole movie is impactful. I think that uh, the chase scene at the end of the movie is like equal parts dude running behind this girl with a chainsaw, iconic scene to like kind of ridiculous trucker stops 
runs away as Leather, but then Leatherface cuts his leg a little bit. To another truck pulls up, and she's extremely chaotic. And again, I don't know if it was good, but it was chaotic. Um, the dinner sequence, I'm not able to come up with, like obscene is a word, ridiculous is a word, obscenely ridiculous, ridiculously obscene. Maybe those two in, in conjunction work <laughs> together well to describe it. It's just like the dialogue and the interaction, it does what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make me feel gross, and I felt gross. Again, to defend Leatherface, though, like he was by himself at home with Grandpa Leatherface upstairs. Like he had to do what he had to do. He's not cooking the bodies up. These people walked into his house. He's not cutting people. He's not a hitchhiker cutting up people in their own van. Like he's, I don't know. I think he gets a bad rap as like the villain of this movie, but he's the one you could forgive the most. He's the one, if it went to jury, he would get the least amount of time, is what I'm saying. He's not the mastermind behind this operation. So I'm giving him a pass. Give Leatherface a pass as a villain. He certainly becomes more problematic as the series goes on, I think. <laughs> I have not seen the rest of the series, so... I can save you some time. The sequel is a ton of fun. The remake is fine? I don't know. Well, Matt, I like the commentary you shared around the dinner scene. I, that dinner scene is just wild to me. Between, you know, you already talked about Grandpa sucking the blood off of her finger, which is just... I love, by the way, that it's never acknowledged again. Like grandpa's a vampire not in any other way shape or form addressed no one else in the family seems to be that interested in blood it's never addressed in any sequels or just a weird dude likes to suck fingers i don't know <laughs> maybe it's a fetish grandpa's fetish i feel like you're giving him too much credit for calling him a vampire he's not a fucking vampire he's just a creepy dude who wants to suck on fingers <laughs> consensual finger sucking is one thing and i'm not saying i'm behind that but i can see how that's okay but like non-consensual finger sucking that's a problem that's fair. And I think there's there's quite a bit of non-consensual just things in this movie. There's I think nothing, that's, that's... Yeah, me watching the movie wasn't consensual. Just <laughs> just everything about this movie. But I do love, we already kind of pointed out like the humor of the family kind of arguing with each other and kind of bickering. I was really fascinated, especially on, I think it was my second watch this week of how Sally's like mental breakdown is edited. Like she's just, she's screaming, but you get these like insanely extreme close-ups on like her iris and it's like really green. The, these big close-ups of her eyes and you could just see like the whites of her eyes and it's just this really kind of terrifying you know series of like quick cuts with her screaming and the sounds and again it's just this like assault on the senses uh that's kind of playing out never mind the fact of what they're actually serving for dinner right which is uh, obviously quite gross the, uh, the the concept behind the barbecue i also like that you highlighted kind of like that final chase scene the very end of that is the part that's the most iconic right i think people who even haven't seen the film are familiar with that snippet of footage at the end of Leatherface basically like dancing with the chainsaw. He's like spinning around and kind of like throwing it up in the air. And I think that's one of those like really, really famous shots that, that people are, are, are really familiar with, even if they aren't familiar with everything that led up to it. <laughs> I feel like that whole final chase sequence is fascinating because the whole movie, as weird as it is, right, and as out there as it is, is largely grounded in reality. The, the film was actually shot on 16 millimeter and then blown up to 35, right? They shot it documentary style. Like you can see regularly that they move to these like handheld shots. So it's got that like documentary style filmmaking it's very like washed out and the colors are kind of gone you know most of the film is in daylight so it's very like kind of like sun soaked it's almost like invasive how much daylight uh is in the film and so you kind of get all of this like gritty realism throughout and that dovetails really well with this opening idea of the film is based on a true story like all of the marketing was about how you know this is based on a true story it's based on a true story right the interesting part about that too is the fact that that functions is like a really interesting subtle commentary if you think about when it came out right so this movie came out in 1974 in the 70s you basically have like the death of the hippie generation for for lack of a better way to describe it right the 60s was you know peace and love and we've got our bell bottoms on and you know make love not war and all that kind of stuff the 70s was watergate 
politicians and authority figures are lying to you. Vietnam, right, and everything that happened there. The sort of death of the traditional conception of the American nuclear family, right? You had all of these kind of rejections of that positive viewpoint and stance of the 60s. And I think this movie embodies that, right? You send these young, hip, I mean, they're very kind of hippie-ish urbanites, right? They're wearing bell bottoms, they're driving around in a van. You have them encounter these, you know, what you would think would be like, you know, simple country folk who it turns out want to, you know, kill them and eat them. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just it, it's this very direct assault on and a, and a direct reflection of the era in which it came out right it's telling you all these things are true while at the same time completely fucking with you and subverting that whole concept so obviously the hitchhiker brother whatever he is he wanted to kill him because he invites him over for dinner and makes that funny joke that he makes <laughs> you, you you can have dinner with us you like head cheese my brother makes it real good you like it. That dude is so out there, man. But he marks the van. So, like, they made it a point to make that a point. But, like, that never becomes anything. The gas station, he says, I don't have gas. But then even that guy doesn't look like he want trouble because he yells at Leatherface for even trying to kill the kids. Make sure you killed them all. And is also like, don't go playing up there with people's homes. Don't like he he does not like he says, oh, yeah, go go check it out. He's like, no, don't go up there. Don't do it. Like he doesn't want that smoke. And then Leatherface never sees the van. No one sees the van because it's parked outside their dad's old house. No one ever sees it again. I don't know. I guess a little bit. Maybe maybe he said, I don't have gas, which is like you could stay here for a while. and Maybe we're going to do stuff to you here. Some there's that argument to be made. That was going to be my counterpoint was that he basically was telling them, we don't have gas, stay here. But Leatherface wasn't there, and that guy wasn't going to overpower anybody. I don't know. Again, Leatherface just uh, protecting his own. That's all I'm saying. And just kind of tying that back to what you, your, your comments about that final scene about kind of like the oddness of the chase and kind of how all that goes down for all of that gritty realism that represents like the first three quarters of the film. I feel like that whole last sequence reads like a dream sequence. Not that I think it is a dream sequence, but it's filmed like a dream sequence, right? And like more precisely, it's filmed like a nightmare, right? And I don't know how well you or, or anyone else who's listening really remembers their dreams or even their nightmares for that matter. But I feel like it's a common trope in a nightmare that maybe you're being chased by somebody who's like really close but never quite catches you and then the dream ends and you wake up when they catch you. I had a dream last night that I was floating in orange soda. It was more of a fantasy. <laughs> I was I almost forgot about that super fun dad joke that I had and then you started talking about dreams and oceans. I, I, I do think that it's it's a uh, but it's interesting, right? Because you're right that like he always seems like he's just about to catch her, but he's always like a couple steps behind, and it just kind of continues on. And everything about the timing of that final sequence just feels weird for a movie that's so focused on realism and like being grounded in a real space. That final chase scene from end to end is the only part of the film that truly feels like it exists outside of time that it feels like it exists in its own kind of space. Yeah, in this cool world where Leatherface's cardio stays ready. I don't know that, like, I don't know if you look at it. He was, he was bulking up. He yeah, bulking up is one thing, but dude, his cardio is incredible. Like, I, he almost catches Sally, presumably because she has a major head injury, but, like, she chases, he chases her down earlier in the film and almost kept, like, he, there's no way that guy should be keeping up with that girl, and he is, he is. It doesn't look like the dude's out in the background in 40s, but he probably is, so good for him. So I don't know that that whole sequence is again, it's it's a little out there, but it's by far one of my favorite scenes in a horror film. It kind of goes for a bit, um, but it's so iconic. Now, before we do wrap up kind of this breakdown of the movie and kind of get into a few other elements to wrap things up, we kind of talked about some of the problematic elements, right? Like I know, Matt, you kind of highlighted the shitty way everybody is to Franklin. He's also kind of shitty to everybody else. And then obviously Leatherface being mentally impaired, something that is um, uh, accentuated later in the film series, right? Like they pull that in even more. You kind of talked about the way the film deals with people with disabilities. I know one of the things that stands out to me more and more, especially because this movie has found its way into so much literature about the final girl phenomenon, right? The girl who survives, the girl who stands up to the killer, girl power, yeah. For all that, the movie is super misogynistic, right? All the dudes in the film are dispatched in short order, right? Here's a sledgehammer, here's a sledgehammer, here's a chainsaw, and we never see them again. All of the girls in the film are tortured horrifically on screen, right? Like she's up on that meat hook for a minute. They're in that dinner scene for a minute, which is incredibly problematic. 
problematic. And it does beg the question, and I don't know that I have any good answers to it, but it certainly does beg the question of why it's only the female characters in this film that endure that level of psychological torture. And Matt, I don't know if you have any thoughts. It's obviously a really heavy kind of deep topic, but it's something I'd be remiss if I ignored. Uh, yeah, it's pretty apparent that that's what they're going for. It wasn't as apparent until the second guy dies quick because it's like quick kill, slow kill. And you're like, maybe the kill is just going to get slower. And then it's like quick kill. And then like Franklin, that's a rough death. And we don't even see him die necessarily, right? A quick kill necessarily. But it it's not on screen. We don't have to suffer through it. It definitely happens off camera while Sally's getting the worst of it. So definitely something that's prevalent in the movie. Matt, I'm super excited to circle back on your final impressions of the film. But before we get there, we do have a couple of fun games since we're back to movies that are kind of fun. So the first one that I have is one that I'm sure is going to go spectacularly well with Matt being a huge horror fan, and that is Name That Film. I'm going to share with you information about the final girl in the film, because that was obviously like a big thing that came from this movie, and a little bit about the plot and see if you can guess what movie it is. And I don't know, bonus points if you can tell me who the killer is from the movie. Matt, are you ready? I'm ready. Fantastic. First up, we've got Lori Strode, a neighborhood babysitter, survives a night being terrorized by a masked killer. Scream. It is not Scream. Um, is it Michael Myers? It is. What movie? Halloween. Halloween. Yes, indeed. Jamie Lee Curtis, the other kind of famous final girl, is Lori Strode, the neighborhood babysitter. Number two, uh, Jess Bradford and her sorority sisters field obscene, disturbing phone calls over Christmas break. Um... I don't know. Got nothing. It is Black Christmas. 1974's Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark, who also directed A Christmas Story. Dude liked Christmas movies. Number three. I think you're ready for this one, Matt. Scream. Sydney Prescott must follow the rules to survive the Woodsboro murders. Scream. Final answer. It is Scream. The killer was? Ghostface. Ghostface. You are correct. Uh, number four. I got two more. Nancy Thompson and her friends are haunted in their sleep by a nightmare from the past. It's Freddy Krueger and it's Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, Nightmare on Elm Street, yes. Haven't seen it either, but that one tells itself. Uh, we'll probably do that one at some point. It's fun. It's really fun. Uh, Heather Langenkamp, famous final girl there. All right, the last one. This one's kind of hard. Ginny Field stares down a burlap sack masked killer who's terrorizing a summer camp. <sighs> summer camp. That would be Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th. It is Jason Voorhees. It's Friday the 13th part two. Nicely done. Some fun with the final girls of, uh, of all these kind of famous horror films. Of course, the flip side of that is the slashers embodied in Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Leatherface. And I'm curious to know who makes your Mount Rushmore of these like horror killer slasher types. So the two that I have seen the most of, um, so I'll put those as one and two, would be Jigsaw from Saw, Ghostface from Scream. I'll throw on Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers just because they're the, probably the most iconic. Even though I haven't seen all the, seen the movies, if you tell me slasher, I go to those two immediately. Nice. I like it. Those are iconic. Uh, my Mount Rushmore of slashers. I got to start with Jason Voorhees. I think he's my all-time favorite. I have a stupid amount of Jason Voorhees art up in my apartment. So he's definitely my number one. I think Freddy Krueger's a close second. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies are just really fun. I think Michael Myers is too iconic to ignore. So I got to go with Michael Myers. That mask and everything about that is just so iconic. And I'd be remiss if I didn't do Leatherface. It's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. Leatherface was one of the first, again, kind of horror characters that truly scared me. So by all means, give me Leatherface. Last but not least, uh, Matt, in our last episode on No Country for Old Men, you talked about some of your all-time favorite film villains. And obviously, both of our movies really centered on villains, right? Anton Chigurh, a central figure in No Country for Old Men, and Leatherface and the Sawyer family are central figures in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So we're dealing with movies with a lot of bad dudes. In fact, Texas Chainsaw Massacre even references the Bolt cattle gun that's used in No Country for Old Men. So I thought it'd be fun to circle back to your original uh, suggestion about some of your favorite villain villains and help us pull together our top five. Matt, I know you shared a couple of your favorites. I'm curious to know, what is your top five all-time, all-film types for film villains? They're all relatively new-ish, but still iconic. One of them you reminded me after looking at your list, so I got to give you props for that. Anton Sugar, No Country for Old Men. Hans Landa. Yes! Great, 
grade villain in Inglorious Bastards. Thank you for reminding me of that iconic role. Then we have Heath Ledger's Joker, which is on both of our lists. And then I've got Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. Uh, I think she is incredibly well done and unnerving and like also up until she slits the throat of Neil Patrick Harris, spoiler alert, she's kind of justified. You're not necessarily rooting against her. And then it's like, wow, she's super sick. And then Detective Alonzo Harris, Denzel Washington's iconic crooked detective in Training Day would be on my list as well. King Kong ain't got shit on me. Definitely some icons on your list for sure. Holy cow. You mentioned we've got some overlap on our list and I, I wanted to make sure that I circled back because I was reticent when you first threw out Anton Chigurh. I was like, well, I know he's a great villain. Is he my top villain? I I'm gonna close the loop on that and say Anton actually made the number one spot on my list as I thought about this. So shout out Javier Bardem. Anton Chigurh is definitely the number one film villain that I can think of. Heath Ledger was a close second with the Joker. And I actually went with Hannibal Lecter at number three, Anthony Hopkins, it is just like an all-timer. So shout out for Hannibal Lecter. Hans Landa, uh, Christoph Waltz with his incredible turn. I feel like it's mostly his dialogue that does it for me in Inglorious Bastards. Just absolutely incredible. And then Robert Patrick, the T-1000. Man, I remember when I saw T-2 as a kid, that fucking liquid metal Terminator scared the shit out of me. That was so intimidating and so gnarly and just like relentlessly pursuing. John Connor and Sarah Connor and Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-800 throughout the course of the film was just like super intense. Uh, a lot of incredible villains here. Tough cut for me was Bill the Butcher, Daniel Day-Lewis from uh, Gangs of New York, um, who says one of the most gangster lines of dialogue I've ever heard in any movie, and it was when he's sleeping with a prostitute. And she's like, William? And he's like, just because we fucked doesn't mean you can call me by my Christian name. It's like, oh shit, this dude is real shitty. That's a tough cut for me. It was either him or Detective Lonzo Harris, but I thought I'd give the nod to the dirty cop who tried to get Ethan not killed in the bathroom. Denzel, man. So that's, uh, that's the lists. Please uh, text us, tweet us, call it in. Give us your best villains. That's what we want to hear. And that is what we want to hear. So hit us up on at Whiskey Flick Pod or call that Whiskey Flick Hotline 818-660-6369. We want to hear your takes on your favorite slashers. And we want to hear about your top five film villains. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Is there someone else you would add to the list? Shout it out and you'll be on next week's show. So give us a ring and we will pull you in. So Matt, we got to put the wraps on this. It's time for us to climax this episode. And before we get into our actual rating, any final thoughts on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Happy to move on. <laughs> and I'll explain in my ratings the bump that it got. I don't really have anything additional to add other than just to appreciate our viewers, especially if they are, are not super inclined to watch a movie like this. You and I are kind of splitting our audience between the people who are like, yeah, horror, awesome. The people who are like, this movie is fucked up. And just know nothing else that we're going to throw at you is going to be quite as intense as this movie. So Matt, you know our rating scale up to 99 bottles of whiskey on the wall. Give us the dirt. Where did Texas Chainsaw Massacre land for you? Uh, it's getting 50 bottles. Watching the movie, I was prepared to give it one bottle because I do not like the movie. But then I did realize that it was effective in doing what I was trying to do. So from an effectivity standpoint, it would get 99 bottles. For me, actually liking the movie, I give it a zero bottles. Therefore, I will land in the middle with a 50. Well, I can certainly appreciate that take. And, and on a personal level, I appreciate you grinning and bearing it through a, a movie that would not normally be within your comfort zone. So shout out to that. I, I'm going to do a few of those, I'm sure, that are on your list. Absolutely. I, I picked some shit ones. So looking forward to some of that. And that's the beauty of film, right? Is we can all kind of have different things that we like. You know what? I'm going to be cheeky on this one. And I'm going to rate this film 74 for 1974 when it came out. It's an incredible film. It's an iconic film. It literally defined horror movies as we know them today. That being said, I can point to at least half a dozen other franchises that did the things that this movie started, ran with them and did them better. So an important film, an incredible film, horror films as we know them today would not exist in the same way without it. So that to me brings it around, you know, 74. All right, Matt. Well, once again, we find ourselves confronted with a movie that doesn't have a lot of a soundtrack outside of weird sounds. <laughs> Um, so I'm curious to know uh, for yourself, what is your soundtrack for this week, whether it's uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre related uh, or if it's something else for you this week? 
Uh, something else this week it is the song that is not in your ears because apparently it hasn't made it to your FYP page yet, but it is the song Thinking With My Dick by Kevin Gates. If anybody's on TikTok, they'll know. There's this uh, video of this like white man, like a parade for Mardi Gras. Just looks like a basic Southern white dude holding like an American flag cup who's like singing along with every word of the song. And it's like a vibe. And I just, uh, it's not a good song, but it's stuck in my head. So it's going to be Thinking With My Dick by Kevin Gates. Ain't too pretty in the face, but she's super thin. I'm just thinking with my dick. My shit dumb. I'm just thinking with my dick. My shit dumb. I'm just thinking with my dick. Matt, thank you for sharing that because that's been bugging me ever since you mentioned it off the cuff like a week ago. It was like, what fucking thing was he talking about? Because it's not on my FYP. I am on TikTok, but it's not, it has not yet made an appearance on my FYP. Well, for me, I'm going to go with a song that was inspired by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that's by the band Ramones. Uh, their very first album, which is probably more famous for almost every other song on it. It's the album that brought us Blitzkrieg Bop, uh, among others, um, actually has a song about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that's called Chainsaw Chainsaw, the lyrics directly reference Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I was listening to that song a little bit as I was prepping for this episode. So shout out to the Ramones and Chainsaw from their debut album. All right, Matt, it's time to wrap up our show. And as always, we want to do that with what's living in our head rent free. Uh, Matt, what is living in your head rent free this week? Elden Ring, video game Elden Ring that everyone's playing. It's so much fun. It's so hard. It sucks. I hate that I love it. I love that I hate it. It's good. It is. It's really good. It's a lot of fun. I know we've shared a couple of memes commiserating about the pain. It's it's so it is really a lot of fun, but man, it is a it's a tough ride. I decided to not do a negative rant and decided to do a positive rant and talk about how the US Senate this week unanimously agreed to make daylight savings time permanent. I'm like so unbelievably excited about that. Obviously, it still has to pass the house, it still has to pass the uh the, the president's desk, but I don't know about you, Matt, but I hate time change. I'm always like laggy and groggy and like awful for a few days after a time change. So I'm excited about the fact that like daylight savings time might just become our permanent time. Initial thought was that's awesome. Time change, um, spring forward sucks, but I love fall back so much that I might be willing to live with it because fall back's great. Getting that extra hour of sleep in the fall is almost worth losing one in the spring. So I'm, I got mixed feelings. Look what your brother did to that star. All right. Well, thanks for joining us again for Whiskey Flick. Uh, hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, throw us a review to help other people find the show. Uh, we'll be back in your feed next Friday with more, including your thoughts on 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, as always, we want to hear from you. So hit us up on social media at Whiskey Flick Pod to join our polls and share your takes on the film. You can email us at whiskeyflickpod at gmail.com, or you can call the Whiskey Flick hotline at 818-660-6369 and tell us your thoughts on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, to be featured on next week's show. Matt, as we get ready to wrap up, is there anything else that we need to plug or any final thoughts for the listeners? Football season is in the off season right now, but uh, two podcasts that will be back and up and running um, by time season is coming would be the 58 West King Fantasy Football Podcast that I host with Tony Cosentino. Shout out to them, to me, to us. And also shout out to the Tackle Court Fantasy Football Podcast hosted by Nate Molinay, friend of the show. We'll both be taking sabbatical during the offseason, catch up on some other stuff, and then we'll be back at it again when fantasy football draft season comes along. So go give those a listen. Absolutely. Shout out Tony, Matt, and Nate on 58 West King and Taco Corp. Definitely check out what's already up there, right? Obviously, as Matt mentioned, more coming as we return from the season. Definitely give those guys a follow. You can check out their shows. We actually have links to them in our show notes. Thanks again, everybody, for checking out Whiskey Flick. We will see you next week for more on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We do have a special guest joining us. And of course, two weeks from now, we are ready to get out of the darkness of the Lone Star State because holy cow, this whole month has been bad dudes and dark spaces in Texas. We're going to brighten it up. 
up uh, and hit the sunny confines of the baseball diamond. Yeah, we're going to spend a few weeks celebrating the return of baseball, first and foremost with Bull Durham with a very special guest. So I'm really, really excited to hit that one up in a couple of weeks. Uh, but we'll see you next week for more on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And until then, let's keep that whiskey flowing and those flicks going. We'll see you next week. You make real good head cheese, you like it.